Hey guys, how is it going? I'm Apurva Misra and welcome to the second episode of Career Dissection. We have two wonderful pilots here, Evan and Afshan, describing their journey and how to best prepare for a career in aviation. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Afshan David. I am, well, right now unemployed, but uh, I was actually just recently working as a survey pilot. I started off my career uh, by finishing Seneca College's uh, Bachelor of Aviation uh, program. And then I actually worked for a bank for a little bit, and we'll go into the why that happened in a few minutes. Um, but yeah, I started working as a pilot, as a survey pilot about uh, a year and a half ago. And uh, I did that for a year, got all my hours, and then came back home applied for a job with a regional airline and I did get an offer but then COVID happened so kind of sitting here right now. Hi my name is Evan I'm an airline pilot working for a regional airline here in Toronto Canada and outside of that I'm also actively involved in looking at how aviation training can be enhanced with the use of home flight simulator technology. Before my current job I flew small airplanes out on the west coast of Canada and before that, I went to business school and worked for a couple of years as a management consultant. So you worked in CIBC for almost four years. How did yeah. you choose that career path and what was it like working there? Um, so after I finished my bachelor in aviation, um, the harsh reality of aviation is that it is very, very expensive. And uh, when you finish, the first job you're going to get as a flying, uh, sorry, your first flying job you're going to get is not, uh, is not going to be able to pay the bills for what you just went through. So I took the first uh, job that came my way, which was uh, telephone banking at CIBC. Um, it's a really, really, like a bank, I would say, is one of the most stable places that you could be working. Um, they were very, very good. Like I had no financial background, uh, never took a finance course or anything like that, but they basically trained me right from, from ground zero and built me up. I worked in, uh, telephone banking for about a year and a half, I want to say. And then, uh, then I got promoted and went to pre-approved mortgages in their mortgage department. And I worked there for, I would say about two and a half years. Uh, I loved the mortgage department. It was it really with mortgages there's no really hard set rules um there's no manual that you can read that would give you all the answers everything is like a case by case so you're constantly learning um but it was a really great place to work i had really amazing managers that always wanted to you know help me they always wanted to help me build my career um they knew i had an aviation background so they knew i liked challenges and stuff like that so they're constantly asking me like hey like what do you want to do next because once you excel in your current role, like CIBC is very good with trying to to excel you and help you get further and further. So it was a really good experience. I don't regret anything there. I learned a lot of valuable skills, especially with personal finance. So I look at money very differently now versus when I uh, when I just finished school. And I would suggest to anybody, like if you can manage to work in a bank for even a year, you are going to learn so many things that are going to be so valuable to you that there's nothing wrong with it at all. So you hold an honors business degree and have also worked as a consultant from 2012 to 2014. How did you choose that career path and what was it like working there? When I went to business school initially, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I sort of thought, okay, I'll do the corporate thing for a little while, work in an office, see what that's like. And I thought consulting is a nice broad field where if you find a passion that you're interested in, perhaps one of the various client projects you're working on, it's relatively easy to make the move into industry if that's what you choose to do. So that's how I initially thought of consulting as one of the things that I wanted to do. A lot of people that come out of my business school end up in either consulting, marketing, finance, or they run their own business. And of those sort of four options, I thought consulting would be the most interesting and again, give me a few different options for career paths. Of course, I ended up not following any of those and decided to become a pilot instead. When did you obtain your commercial pilot license? And was it always on your mind or was it a sudden switch? Um, no, it was, okay, so why I got into aviation, um, in grade 12, you know what, I was always a math and science type of person. I loved art, but I just always felt like if I wanted to do anything uh, 
concrete I had to you know get into the math and sciences so I was always taking those courses but uh, I would say in grade 12 once I had to figure out okay which way do I actually want to go um, I really started thinking about okay what, what what kind of career path do I want and I knew I wanted to pick something that wasn't a doctor engineer or a lawyer um, but I wanted something really different something that allowed me to travel something that uh would constantly challenge me and something that was very different for a girl to do and uh, I came across I had a, a one of my classmates he was one year older than me and he went into Seneca for aviation and that just got me going it made me think a little more into it I looked into the industry and I thought like wow this is actually really uh, really something that I think would resonate well with me and it did um, so with Seneca I think I got my commercial in 2013 um but that was all part of the program it was part of my degree so with them it's, it works a little bit differently than it would anywhere else um part of your you do your degree on the side and you do your flight training on the side as well so it, it it's basically based off of what their syllabus is um but yeah i don't think i i didn't it was never like a switch uh i definitely also didn't have it as like a childhood dream or anything like that. Uh, I would say in grade 12 is probably when I finally narrowed it down. And uh, the commercial license was just part of the training. I was flying recreationally while I was working in consulting. So you can get a student or recreational pilot license, kind of like a boating license or something like that. And you can just take out small airplanes, fly your friends and family around. And so I did that for a number of years. It was a lot of fun doing tours over downtown Toronto, going to see Niagara Falls, all in a small four-seater airplane. And I was loving that and having a lot of fun with it, but I sort of came to the realization that if I was going to have enough money to one day own my own airplane and to be able to keep this hobby going, I'd be working a little bit more than I wanted to and probably not have a ton of time for flying. And so I thought, how do I make this passion for flying into something that I'm getting paid for instead of something that I am paying for? And the idea of pursuing this commercially came about that way. I've always loved aviation. I've always been really passionate about it. But it wasn't until I had worked for a few years in an unrelated field that I thought, this is really something that I could do. It would be a lot of fun. And at the time, I was young enough and I had enough options available that if it didn't work out, I was able to go back to what I was doing. Where I was working at the time, the firm that I was with was really supportive. And they said, look, if you want to go and do your private pilot's license and then do your commercial license, get all this stuff done and see what it's like, we'll be happy to have you back anytime in the next few years. So if you don't like it or if you decide it's not for you, come back. So having that safety net behind me was a really, really advantageous thing to have. But of course, as it turned out, I got my license, I started flying and I really never looked back. Can you describe a feeling when an aircraft is taking off and landing as these are the most crucial aspects in flying? And what excites you the most about being a pilot? Uh, you know what? It's actually really funny because one of the things that when I started my training, I the one thing I remember before I got into a small plane was that I love that feeling of being pushed into your seat when you're taking off. It like it, it's almost like a roller coaster, and I know a lot of people hate it, but I I love it, and I'm com- almost like addicted to that feeling of being pushed into your seat. Um, the feeling of taking off is it, it's amazing. I mean, like you'll do it often enough that, that it does lose its exhilaration. But uh, taking off and landing, I would say taking off is not too too bad. It's actually more exciting. But landing is definitely a crucial. Uh, crucial part of the flight and i think that's where it's it's really intense because that's where all of your training comes into play is when you're landing because it is very very challenging especially when you're when you're first learning to to land um it is very very challenging and a lot of people you know they could be great at flying the plane they could be great at taking off and stuff but if you can't land the plane properly your instructor will not let you go solo and if you can't go solo, then, you know, your, your career as a pilot is not happening. So I definitely think, like, uh, taking off is it's not bad at all. Like, it's, it's still one of the most crucial aspects. But um, I think landing is definitely the more difficult part of the training and, uh, and the job. Uh, in terms of what I love about being a pilot the most, I just love that it's so different. Like, it's not – your lifestyle is very different. It's not a nine-to-five um you don't have a desk job i guess like you could count the cockpit as your office but it's still uh 
it's very very different but i think like the one thing i love the most about it is the travel you get to see different places all the time um you meet different people but your life is like your your schedule almost will never be the same for two months um each month you're going to have a different you know sometimes you have weekends off sometimes you don't you have random days off in the week um that's i think something that I really look forward to and it's it's just the fact that it's not a nine to five that like my life is not uh no offense to anybody else that that likes the nine to five but I I don't think I was built for the nine to five I don't like the repetitiveness of it but being a pilot you definitely get a mix of that um you can and once you become a pilot in an airline you can always switch to a desk job if you really like the nine to five but I think my favorite part is the travel and the fact that I'm not working the nine to five, I'm always doing different things and uh, seeing different places and seeing, meeting different people and different experiences really. No, I really can't. I mean, it's one of the most exhilarating feelings in the world and I don't think there's anything like it, particularly on takeoff and especially now in a high powered jet airplane, when you advance those throttles forward and you start to feel the roar of the jet engines and you're hurtling down the runway, I just don't think there's any feeling like that. You, know, you feel it in the back as a passenger, and trust me, it's still fun doing that, but I don't think there's any substitute for being up front. Landing is probably the more challenging of the two, and so being able to have a really nice landing, yeah, that's a pretty cool feeling as well, but I think they're both really tough to describe. As far as my favorite part of being a pilot, that depends on what type of flying you're talking about. When I was flying small airplanes, it was the fact that we were kind of running the show. So, of course, there might only be myself and not even always another pilot. Sometimes it was just me. And there would be eight or nine passengers with me. And the decision-making around where where are we going to do if there's some weather, what are we going to do if the passengers decide they'd like to go somewhere else, what if they want to go here at this time but there's some regulation or there's some airspace restriction that prevents that. The fact that you were kind of in charge of really the whole operation and it was on you to try and make everything work, I really appreciated that challenge. Nowadays in the airline world, things are very different. Of course, it's a much higher structured environment where there are hundreds of people that are paid to look after you specifically. So there's a little bit less of that full control atmosphere. And I think my favorite part of it now is trying to make sure that everything that's supposed to be in place is lining up. So I like the flying, of course, and the takeoffs and the landings. Those are all fun. But being able to sort of sit back at the end of the day and say, you know, I saw three or four little problems, and instead of letting those things become a half-hour delay or letting those things become a flight where we are missing some piece of equipment like catering or we don't have cups or whatever, we were able to solve those issues right away, and the customers who were flying with us never knew there was anything wrong. But yet we had those three or four opportunities, and we were able to overcome them. What is the path to being a pilot like? It includes a lot of technical aspects as well, I suppose. What kind of certifications and courses did you have to complete and what should an outsider be aware of? So lots of things, actually. Um, there are some things that I wish I had known before, too. But I would say in terms of trying to, in terms of the path, there's two paths that you can take. Um, the one I did is, Okay, basically, to become a pilot, you don't actually need any formal uh, prior education. So you don't have to have um, like a bachelor in anything. You don't have to have any post-secondary education. You can actually just start doing it right out of high school. You probably don't even need high school, to be honest. Um, but what you do have to, like if you choose not to do the post-secondary route, you can go to a flying club or any airport that has a flying school and let them know like, hey, I'm interested in obtaining my uh, commercial license and my uh, uh, instrument ratings and stuff like that. And they, you can let them know, I'm looking to become an airline pilot and they can guide you through, okay, these are the types of ratings that you, you need to get. This is how much money it's gonna cost. If you do it privately, um, you, would, you could get all of your training done within a year. I would say like even eight months if you really, really push it and the weather is good. Um, it'll cost you, I would say, minimum $80,000 if you do it that way. Um, and it, you don't have to do courses like math and calculus and all and physics and all that stuff. But if you do have that background, it's definitely more helpful. Um, but you will do series of exams with the government of Canada. Um, so every time you get a license, every time you or you're looking to get a license or if you're looking to get a rating, 
there's almost always a written exam that's associated with it. So if you want your private license, um, you write your you write a, an exam called a P star. You write your radio exam. Not the end of the world. They're not super hard. You do have to study a little bit for it, but it's not it's nothing challenging. Your private license, then you have to study for that, and you write your written private. That you definitely have to study for, and it is challenging, especially if like you don't have formal background in any of it. Um, after your private, you will do your night rating. There's no exam for that. It's just uh, I believe it's ten hours of flying with five hours with an instructor, five hours alone at night, and then you'll have your night rating. After that, you can get your commercial license. Um, commercial for the commercial there's also an exam that you have to write and then you look into something called your IFR rating so your instrument flying rating so in order to fly into clouds um, you do have to have a rating for it and there's a, an exam that you have to write for that and then you do a uh, some people they can do their single engine IFR flight test or you can get your commercial you can write your uh, your IFR written and then you can go do your multi-engine rating and then you do your multi-engine IFR rating together instead of doing a single engine IFR rating and then a multi-IFR rating uh, separately you could just do both of those together when you do your multi-engine rating and then after you do that um, technically you are employable um, for uh, for a job as a pilot. However, if you want to work at an airline, you need to have an airline transport pilot's license. In order to get that, you have to have 50, there's experience that comes with it. It's not just the licenses. The experience is 1500 hours total and it gets broken down into how much of that time has to be instrument, how much of it has to be cross country and how much of it has to be, um, with uh, multi-engine and multi-crew and stuff like that. So you go, to, you go through different uh, companies and, and uh, build your experience. And then once you hit all those hours, then you've officially, then you officially have a airline transport pilot's license. Now that's one way of doing it. The other way is that if you look at certain um, colleges or universities, um, they actually have degree programs or even, uh, even uh, diploma programs that are associated. So you get some sort of formal train, formal uh, education and you do your, your flight training on the side. So the way I did it is that I did a four year bachelor with uh, Seneca College. And so I graduated with a bachelor of aviation technology. Um, and so along with that, while you're doing the, the way they do it is your first two semesters, you're just doing book work. So it's, uh, and it's intense. Like they make you do calculus, they make you do chem, they make you do physics on so many different levels, mechanics, uh, fluid dynamics. Like there's so many courses that you, they put you through first after your, your second semester. Once you pass your second semester, that's when they graduate you onto a flight line. Um, so with flight line, then you start your, your private license. And then in September, so the summers are always for like, it's, it's called intensive flying. So you do all your flying in the summer. And then during the second, third and fourth year, you will do the academics as well as your flying. So it is more challenging because it's, you're doing a degree and all of your flight training at the same time. It's spread over over four years because you're doing a degree, but still it's very, very challenging. And um, time management is a big issue. There's so many challenges to doing it that way. However, um, I would suggest if you're coming straight out of high school and you don't have any post-secondary education, please, please, please do it this way. Like even if you know that you will never do anything else other than fly, I would still suggest that get some sort of formal post-secondary education so that you have something to fall back on if God forbid, but if your medical, if something happens to you and your, your medical, you lose your medical, you can't fly anymore for a living. At least you have something to fall back on. But also, um, they, like most of these programs are subsidized by the government of Canada. So you can apply for OSAP and stuff if you do it through a post-secondary institution. Whereas if you go privately with say, uh, um, the Brampton Flying Club or 
uh, Burlington Airport or anything like that, if you do it through separately through a flying school, the government of Canada will not, like OSAP can't fund you. But if you go through Seneca or if you go through, um, let's say, Confed College, um, then you can put all of that stuff onto OSAP. And I think it's much more attainable that way. The only time I would ever suggest that somebody not do it that way is if, let's let's say you have a degree already in something completely unrelated and you want to now become a, a pilot, then yeah, definitely don't waste your time. Don't waste another four years getting a degree that is not really going to put you ahead of anything else because you already have a degree. Um, so for people who already have some sort of formal education, then I would suggest like just go privately and get everything done in a year but if you don't have any formal um post-secondary education then definitely give yourself one up and please put yourself through college or university and do it that way um and i think one one of the most important things about the industry is that you have to realize how sensitive sensitive it is like anything can set this industry off you may have a solid job and you may be working there for 10 years you'll be working for air canada for 30 years but then 9-11 happens and the industry completely goes downhill. You don't know how long it's going to take to, to recover. And then, or something like COVID happens. And again, like the industry, like everything's shutting down. I think that in, in instances like those, because you know that your industry is so fragile, you should have a compl- another set of skills that is completely separate from aviation. So whether that's banking or whether that's, um, you know, finance or anything in medicine, whatever it may be, maybe it's a trade or something like that, please have give yourself a backup. Like the, the lifestyle of a pilot is great, the job is great, but the industry isn't exactly stable to say. So um, I think those, those are the two pathways you can take is one is you can go do everything privately through a flying club or a, or a flight school, that'll cost you around 80,000. If you go through a uh, another program like uh, like Seneca, or if you go to Confed or uh, any other schools that have some flying associated, you can you can apply for OSAP, which means you'll get grants and stuff too. Uh, I think Seneca's tuition might be just under sixty thousand, but that's spread over four years, and you can put that onto OSAP. Whereas any other way, you have to pay for it yourself. And a lot of people actually like start flying privately but then they can't pay for the rest of it so they stop and like switch careers altogether which isn't um isn't ideal you know you just spend forty thousand dollars and now you have to wait to build up another 40 to be able to do anything with it and there's of course all kinds of commercial flying it's not just flying airlines it could be flying corporate jets it could be flying helicopters it could be flying for the military so there's a number of different ways that you can end up and of course because of that there's a number of ways you can get started there are college programs that you can go through There are private training courses that you can go through by literally just going to your local small airport and signing up and being paired up with a flight instructor and going from there. And then the third way that a lot of people choose is the military route. Regardless of which of those three paths you take, generally speaking, you're going to proceed through a series of practical tests. So that is learning in the airplane with an instructor, practicing on your own, and then actually completing a flight test, kind of like a driving test. And then you'll also deal with knowledge components. So there are ground schools that are just like classroom courses that you'll go through. There are written tests that you do at Transport Canada facilities to prove that you have the knowledge that you need. And then when you put those two practical and knowledge pieces together, hopefully you come out of it with the ratings and certifications that you need. And again, depending on which of those ultimate outcomes you want, the licenses and certifications you need may be a little bit different. There seems to be a lot of variety in pirates. So what options do people have after they get their commercial pirate license? Oh, a lot. So I would suggest like if you have your commercial, try to get your your IFR rating as well, because that'll just open up a little more more doors for you. Um, there's so many types of there's so much type of flying that you can do. It's not just airline. There's medevac, so air ambulance. There's survey flying, which I did for a year. There is, um, like, you know, the firefighters with flying. Um, There is, you could go into flight instructing. You could go up north and just do, like, charter flights. Um, There is, there's actually a lot, but most, I think, I would say the main ones are medevac, airline, instructing, uh, survey. I think that would be 
the, the main ones. Um, and each one has its own advantages and disadvantages. I would definitely say before, even if you want to go into airlines, definitely try to maybe give yourself a year of different type of flying experiences um, before you commit to the airline. Because honestly, once you hit the airlines, no one's really leaving that. And everything's based off of your seniority number. So once you get in, don't leave everything. You're going to have to start from the beginning in terms of seniority and getting good shifts and stuff like that. But I definitely would suggest... Um, there are different pathways. There are different options for pilots. Um, even if you know 100% that you want to be an airline pilot. Oh, and there's also a, um, a DART, I, I forget the word, but it's um, not charter, it's corporate. So you can fly like rich businessmen around. Um, so I'd say airlines, corporate, survey, medevac, instructing, um, yeah, definitely, like, give yourself a bit of experience before you head into the airlines, because once you hit there, like, no one really leaves. What is it like working at First Base Solutions? They have such an interesting description on their website. Canada's leading provider of aerial photography, ortho photography, parcel mapping, floodplain mapping, and digital elevation models. Does this entail a use of variety of equipment and specialized aircraft? Um, okay, so First Base Solutions, we have a of seven, I would say nine airplanes now because just when I left they had gotten a uh, Cessna 180 um, but the main crew that does uh, that does um, the flying in Canada and the US we have there's there's a there's another company that we work for and I don't know how much I can go into that but basically it's their equipment and it gets installed onto the planes and uh, the type of line we do, we do just photography. We don't do the, we don't do anything else. But the other two planes that we have, I think those ones are equipped with, um, with the other technology that can do lidar and all the, all that other stuff. So I don't know too much about that one, but I know that we just did photography. And honestly, like even though you are technically a survey pilot, I don't think it really differs too much from any other type of flying it's just that you're you don't go too much into the technology you don't have to learn too much of the technology there's a bar in front of you that tells you where the pictures need to be taken and you kind of just follow that line and there's like there's a bit of like a counter that tells you like okay there's a thousand pictures that need to be taken on this side but you just fly over that area and the computer and the cameras will do all of the other work. You don't have to do any, you don't have to press any buttons or anything like that. You set up your equipment before you take off. And once you take off, you just fly to the area. The computer with the GPSs and everything already knows where where the site is and which angles the, the pictures need to be taken, and how much lighting and stuff like that. So you just work within a certain sun angle. So um, we worked within 25 degrees on either side. So when the the sun rises and it's at 25 degrees we can start taking pictures and then when it's about to set at 25 degrees that's the last time we can take pictures otherwise it just becomes too dark um but working for first base solutions honestly it was so good in terms of um like their training for taking pictures you really don't have to know much about the computers you don't have to know much about the uh, like the systems that they use like they are so well equipped that you're you don't have a cam you don't have a physical camera in your hand like i know certain uh companies do this one is just mounted at the bottom of the plane and they kind of cut a hole <laughs> at the bottom and uh, under the belly and uh the cameras point down everything's already installed all you it's almost like all you have to do is press play and that's it are there any medical fitness requirements what age is the right time to start a career in aviation is there a limitation to that and what about people who want to pursue this as a hobby? So in terms of medical requirements, there are requirements in order to be a pilot at any level. So if you wanted to just be a recreational or a student pilot or even a private pilot, you'll need to achieve a certain level of medical fitness for that. And the standards go up as you want to fly more people or if you want to do this commercially. So those requirements are something you'd want to look at before you got started. Generally speaking, if you wanted to become a pilot, especially if you wanted to do it for a career, I would recommend that you go out and you complete your medical before you even get started. It's a pretty simple process. You go to a special doctor that is certified to give aviation medicals. They do what is basically just a checkup. And if you meet all the criteria, 
you'll be issued a medical certification. And if you can get that at the beginning, you'll have a good understanding of what you need in order to keep that throughout your career. What's the best age to become a pilot? I mean, there's probably no wrong answer to that. Of course, if you're looking to fly for the airlines long term, the more that you're flying, then the more you're going to eventually make because everything is seniority driven and your pay increases the longer you've been with a certain company. So if you could start earlier, the chances of you being more senior, having a better schedule, getting a better ultimate salary, that's where you're going to get started. However, airline flying isn't necessarily the answer for everybody. And there are lots of flying jobs that have nothing to do with the airlines that you could get into really at any point in your life. I started at about 23 or 24. I would say that's probably maybe not the absolute highest. I know people who are in their 40s and 50s that are getting started. But I would suggest that you know, for, for most people, probably 30-ish to 35, if you wanted a career in the airlines, that's about the latest I would recommend starting. And of course, these days with what's happened in the industry and how travel has slowed down, that might be a consideration for people who are looking to get started as well. For private pilots, there's really no wrong answer. The training for a private pilot, well, it's expensive and it will take you at a minimum three or four months and probably for most people more like a year part-time, but you could start that anytime. And I know people who are in their 60s or their 70s who, as long as they meet the requirements for the medical, are certainly able to get started. And I think if you wanted to just get your private pilot license, fly small planes around, take your friends and family out, there's no wrong time to get started with that. It's a fantastic hobby. It's a very expensive hobby. But as I said before, I don't think there's anything that quite compares to it. What is life like after COVID-19? How has it impacted your personal and professional life? Um, honestly, it. I think COVID couldn't have come at a worse time for me because I had resigned from First Base Solutions and I got an offer with a regional airline. And uh, two weeks before my start date, they called me and said, hey, like we're pushing back our, our ground schools because of COVID. Uh, we don't have a start date for you yet, but you're still like, everything's still good to go. And, you know, like that was March and now it's in July. So it's definitely hard. Um, but I would say I'm probably one of the luckier ones. Like I know I have a job lined up. It's just a matter of time. And uh, I'm married. So like when I left to do first base solutions, I was married for six months. And then I left for a year. I wasn't home for a year. And now when I came back, um, you know, I'm home for, I've been home for five months now, and I'm, I'm just taking it as a blessing, like, um, I think other people definitely have it a lot worse. I get to spend time with my family and friends that I missed out a year, I get to relax, I get to uh, just really recoup and start my life over again, and uh, anything, you know, take my time to study a little bit more. Um, work on some hobbies and stuff but honestly I, I can't I, I know it's a lot worse for other people I don't think that I fall in the category where I can complain I definitely would like to start flying again because it's been four or five months now but again I'm in a position where I know I have a job lined up it's just a matter of time but I know for other people you know who have like I know people who work for an airline who are pilots for an airline and then their wives or their husbands are, are uh, flight attendants for that same airline. So them getting laid off and they have kids, like that's probably a lot worse than than what I am with my situation. I'm just taking taking it as a blessing and taking the time to really just relax and and do things that I wouldn't have gotten to do if I was working. At the beginning of this year, aviation was at the strongest that I've ever seen it. It was easier to find a job than ever, and the rate, the salaries, and the benefits, and the working conditions were getting better and better for pilots. If you had asked me in January or February of this year, should I quit my job and become a pilot, even if you were 18, 25, 35, or older, I would have said yes. Now, things have changed dramatically in the industry. Industry experts are predicting a two to three year recovery for us to get back to what travel was like in 2019. I'm not going to make any predictions about what the future looks like for the industry, other than to say that it will come back eventually. But I think if you're somebody who is looking to make a decision right now, it's a very tough decision to try to start flight school. If it were me, I wouldn't change or trade any part of my passion for flying. I would pursue it as much as I could, but I'd give it a little bit of time. Maybe finish your private pot license have some time and do some time building, flying your friends around and enjoying the fact that you might have a little bit of more flexibility depending on what your real life plans look like at this point. 
and give it another year before you start to pursue commercial flying. It's going to take time for the industry to recover, and it's going to take time for those jobs to start appearing again. So if you're somebody who's thinking, do I go into a career in aviation? I don't think the answer is no, but for me, it might be, let's give this a little bit longer. That being said, we know there are all kinds of flying programs out there. There are four-year college programs that people can look into doing. And if you are in that situation, absolutely make sure you get your degree so you have something to fall back on. And four years is a long time. So if you're looking to make that jump today for a program that might start in September, I'd like to hope that by the time you come out on the other side, there's opportunity for you. Again, for anybody who's looking to make the career switch from maybe you've already been working a couple of years out of school, make sure you have that plan B for yourself because these days that'll be more important than ever. Um, what happens when you take a break from flying? Can you get back to flying directly or do you have to go through some sort of training before you get to flying? So with all of your licenses, licenses you have a currency period. Um, within that period, you don't have to do anything special. You can just you can just hop into a plane and start flying again. However, if your currency lapses, then it's a little bit more. Um, like I hadn't, when I finished all of my training, I started working for a bank and then I hadn't flown for about three and a half years. For three and a half years, I hadn't touched an airplane. So when I knew that uh, First Base Solutions wanted to do a flight test with me and interview me, um, they do something called a check ride. And so in the check ride, they basically do um, all of the items that you would do in a commercial flight test. And they just want to make sure you're up to up to standards. And so obviously, like I, I wouldn't suggest that if you haven't flown in three years, I wouldn't suggest you just show up for your flight test uh, or your check ride. I would suggest like, you know, go to a flying club or go to a flight school and say, hey, like I'm licensed. I just need a recurrency flight. And so what they'll do is they'll get an instructor to come up with you and the instructor will just run through. They'll, they'll kind of just do like a mock flight test with you and just help you with let's say your steep turns may be off, they'll help you with that. Um, so we do something called forced approaches, which is uh, basically they they pull your power back to idle and it's almost as if it's, it's simulated engine failure. So you pretend that your engine's gone and uh, you have to pick a field and, and execute a land, not a landing, but you have to execute the approach. And then right before you're about to land, they'll put the power back in and you go, uh, you take off again. But um, if you haven't flown for a while, you definitely have to be uh, current again. In terms of airlines, if you haven't flown for a while, the airline will take care of it. They have they have checks every six months that they do. Um, and like the way the, the government has set it up as well is that like if you are carrying passengers, if you are working as a pilot, then you have to go through certain checks every couple of months. Um, but if you're just flying for fun, then I would suggest after a year, by law, after a year, if you haven't done any type of flying, then you do have to do some sort of check uh, with an instructor or uh, even like taking a course online or writing an, a written exam would, would uh, get you current again. You're also co-founder of a flight simulation conference. Would you like to talk about it a bit more? Yeah, Flight Sim Expo is North America's largest aviation and flight simulation conference. And what we do with that show is we explain to people who are wanting to become pilots one day how the use of a desktop flight simulator that you run on your home computer can be a huge asset in your training. Whether you're looking to become a private pilot and just fly your friends and family around, or if you want to ultimately become an airline pilot or have another career in the commercial space, the use of an at-home flight simulator can seriously impact your training. You can do your training much more quickly than you would. You'll be able to save money because you won't be spending as much time in the airplane. And you'll have much better familiarity with the concepts like airspace, how to fly certain procedures, using navigational tools like a GPS, some of the language that you use when you're speaking to air traffic control. These are all things that if you learn them on your own in an environment that's a lot of fun, that looks kind of like a video game, when you can apply them to your real flying, you're looking at saving anywhere between probably four to $10,000 in your training would be what most average industry users report. So this conference has been designed to help show student pilots what it's like to be able to use an at-home flight simulator. Now, of course, the conference didn't happen this year with respect to the global health pandemic, but it's something we plan to continue in the future. Our most recent show, which was held last year, had over 1,600 attendees and we're looking to bring it back in 2021. FlightSimExpo.com is the URL, 
And on that website, you'll also find links on our YouTube page for some free resources that you might use to get started. So if you're somebody who's always had a passion for aviation, whether or not you really want to fly as a real pilot, you might just love flying. And so you might decide, instead of going out and buying a video game, you'd like to buy a flight simulator. We've got YouTube videos, we've got links to free tutorials that walk you through how to get started. What do you need for a computer? What do you need for a joystick? What type of things should you be thinking about? That's all available for free, linked off our website, flightsandexpo.com. And specifically, you'll find a lot of those free videos on our YouTube channel. Do you regret any of your decisions? And does your professional life impact your personal life? If so, to what extent? Um, do I regret anything? I regret not applying myself more in school. Because in high school, I was uh, I was an honor roll student, and I just figured I'm a smart girl, and I don't need to work as hard as everybody else. But at Seneca, oh my gosh, that definitely slapped me in the face. Um, it is a course that, uh, again, like it's not just the flying, but you're doing a full degree in and everything is calculus and math and and uh, physics. It's heavily physics. Um, and there are courses that you can't, like, so studying something like gas turbine engines and uh, aircraft design and material science and stuff like that, they're very intense courses. Um, so I regret not applying myself more. I think that I could have worked harder in school and done a little bit better. That's probably my only regret in terms of, I always thought I would regret going into, into the banking field after finishing school, but I know, you know, and now I look back at it, I don't regret it. I, I was able to build myself another set of uh, skills that could help me if I ever lost my medical. So I don't have any regrets in terms of that. I just wish that, you know, I had a little more awareness before going in as to how challenging it was going to be and how how much dedication and hard work it really required. I, would, I think I would have got my act together a little bit more. Um, in terms of my my career and my my personal life uh, you know what i i have really supportive people around my family is very supportive my husband's very supportive i remember um when i found out i was going to get the job for first base i was telling him like oh like i'm really sad that uh you know i'm going to be gone for like a year and we just got married and it was surprisingly he was he was so mad at me he was saying like no like you know we this is something you need to do like you work so hard so he was very very encouraging that like no it's fine like we will we'll deal with a year of not being able to see each other but like this is something you worked hard for this is something that you have to do and like my family my parents pretty much looked at it the same way that like they were just very happy that you know i was uh getting back into the field and like yeah i'd be away for for a, a year and my mom cried three times but um but overall i think it was it, they were really supportive about it. I think once I start, again, like I don't have kids right now, but once I start having kids, um, I think it'll be really, really nice that I'll be in an airline environment where I am home uh, every week, several times a week. And um, But I can definitely imagine that it would be challenging for certain families, um, especially if you can't work from home, because, sorry, if your partner can't work from home. Um, if you have kids and your partner can't work from home, then it's like, well, who do you leave the kids with? And it, it's hard because you're not going to be home every night. Um, but in terms of me right now, I think I'm fine. But what I've heard from, from other people is, you know, it can get challenging. So you really should, like, if you're going to have kids um, and become a pilot where you're not home every night, then I definitely think, like, make sure you have that conversation with, your significant other that, hey, you know, especially when you're starting out in an airline or any other job, um, your seniority is going to be at the bottom, which means that you will work Christmas, you will work Easter, you will work Thanksgiving, you're going to work all of the holidays because your seniority is low. Um, as time goes on, it'll get better, but just be prepared that if you have kids, you'll probably miss, like they probably won't see you during Christmas. So um, if you condition them right from the beginning that, hey, we'll have Christmas two days later, or if your significant other is understanding of that, then I think it's completely doable. But if you are a traditionalist and, you know, you like to have, you like for, for other people to be home um, all the time at a certain time, at the same time, it, it's probably going to be much more difficult. But if you're with somebody who is like-minded, then I don't think that 
it is a career that you should give up just because you want to have a family or anything like that. But yeah, in terms of my parents, they've always been really supportive of, of um, well, once I got started, they were really supportive of it. My husband was very supportive, but I definitely know that not everybody is in the same spot. And actually, while I was while I was away, I knew certain um, certain colleagues who had girlfriends and boyfriends back home, and they were not very understanding of the fact that you know, for three four months, their girlfriend or boyfriend is not coming home. So I definitely think I was lucky there, but uh, it definitely has its challenges. And uh, once you finish your schooling, be prepared that for like the next year, year and a half, you're probably going to be in a very far away place. And uh, just mentally prepare yourself to not be too close to family and prepare your family that you're probably not going to see them for a year, year and a half. And then after that, once you hit the airlines or you hit corporate flying, then you'll have more of a schedule and it's more doable. But I think like for a while, it's definitely challenging. You're not going to see all your friends and family. I certainly don't regret the fact that I left consulting to fly. I was working an office job. I was commuting every day to work. I don't miss any part of that. I don't miss Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, even a little bit. There's no doubt that flying commercially, and especially for the airlines, has an impact on your schedule. You are certainly going to be working weekends, evenings, holidays. There is a concept of work-life balance. In fact, I have way more time off now than I had when I was working 9 to 5. But the time off is different. It's not like I am off on the weekends when perhaps someone that you're partnered with or someone that you're living with is off. So you certainly have to find a way to structure your life that works. And I know there's a lot of people that struggle to have relationships, that struggle to have a personal life because their friends that work 9 to 5, they're off on the weekend and they want to go somewhere. Meanwhile, you are just starting your work day at 5 p.m. on a Friday and you'll be flying until Monday. So I think that's something people who are looking to get into this as a career, if it's airline flying, need to understand. But as I said before, there's so many kinds of flying that you can do. So if having weekends off is important to you, you fly cargo. Then you're going to work a lot of evenings, but you'll be most likely home every night, and you'll be most likely able to have your weekends off because a lot less cargo moves on Saturdays and Sundays. I'm certainly happy that I took the plunge, but as I said, having that safety net was critical for me. I'm not sure that without the support of my parents, my family, and then without the support of the company I was working for, knowing that if things didn't work out, I had that opportunity to go back. I'm not sure I would have been as comfortable making that leap. But I can say with certainty, looking back in the past 10 years, if there's something that you feel like you're passionate about, you should follow that passion, whatever that might be. Give yourself some safety nets and give yourself some opportunity that if it doesn't work out, you have a plan B. But I don't think it's ever too late to stop what you're doing and follow your dreams. And from the past two and a half years of airline flying that I've done, I absolutely love every minute of it. And would I change some things? You know, probably. But at the end of the day, I absolutely am happy I made the choice that I did. And I absolutely wouldn't want to go back. What is the right balance between being overcautious or risk-bearing as a career in aviation seems to be high risk? I think it depends on what type of flying you're doing. There's certainly flying that is riskier than others. In the airline world, we are so cautious and so careful because safety is the most important thing any of us ever deals with. There's no pressure to do anything that is unsafe. And as soon as anyone, and it doesn't even have to be us as the pilots, it could be a flight attendant, it could be a maintenance person, it could be one of the passengers. If anybody says, I have a concern about what's going on here, we basically all stop and we say, let's get that concern addressed right away. When you're flying in other aspects, so say you're flying a small airplane, say you're flying a helicopter, say you're flying for a charter company, there can be different pressures that may exist that really don't happen in the airline world. And so in those situations when you may be by yourself in your decision making, there may be a lot more stress on you than there is in the airline world. At the end of the day, if you're a pilot, your concern is getting yourself and your passengers in your airplane safely from where you started to where you need to go. And sometimes that will mean saying no, and sometimes that will mean saying yes, but we need to do this. The ability for a pilot to make those decisions is really what we try to do when we train people. And it's actually something that using a simulator can help with. So I don't think there's really a right answer to as far as balance goes. I think the question is, what's the safest thing to do here? And can we achieve the mission while we are doing it safely making sure that our passengers, ourselves, and our airplane get where it, gets where it needs to go. 
And I think if there's anyone who is trying to compromise safety to be able to achieve that objective, they're not really flying properly. I don't think it's the riskiest, but there's definitely a risk factor. You definitely have to have an appreciation for how dangerous everything is. Um, in terms of the balance, they actually teach you that, that like, look, there's associated risk with flying. If you want zero risk, then don't go flying. That would be the safest thing to do. But there's ways of mitigating risk. Um, you know, like you check the weather before you go, you check your airplane before you go, you check, um, you check along the path and see like, okay, like what you ask yourself, all the stuff you plan your flight and you, you kind of plan for worst case scenario, like, okay, if I had an engine failure along this route, where would I land? And even in flying, um, especially airlines and multi-engine airplanes and stuff, when you're carrying passengers, it's even more, it's even more, uh, important. Um, but you have backup plans, right? Like there, the risk is inevitable, but you have to be able to mitigate it. And there's ways of mitigating it. There's some risks that are completely unnecessary and you shouldn't be taking no matter how high the reward is. Um, but there's certain times where like, you know, yeah, you kind of have to take the risk. There's no way to, there's no way for the risk to be zero. So I don't think you have to be, you don't have to be the most risky person you don't have to be the most brave person you just have to you have to accept that okay everything has a risk but how do i mitigate that risk and again like that's part of becoming a pilot is knowing when you're taking on too much and when to say like nah you know what i i don't think this is worth it um there's a there's a saying that says it's better to be on the ground wishing you were in the air than to be on than to be in the air wishing you were on the ground so through your training, you'll definitely learn to assess risk, but I don't, I wouldn't let that scare you. I think it's just something that comes with experience. Um, but like your instructors and your employer will never really like, they'll never tell you, Hey, like be fearless and just go. There's limitations to the airplane. There's limitations to you as a person. If you've been flying for 10 hours, 15 hours, 15 hours is the max but the point is like if you had a long day yesterday and you're gonna have a long day today and you definitely don't feel good then you know like that's when that's an unnecessary risk to just say like hey i'm not i'm not fit to fly what kind of failures have you experienced and how did you overcome them what kept you going in case of partial success and your desired plan i think the challenge for a lot of people getting into flying for the first time is finding that first job there are a lot of people who will come out of flight school with 250 flying hours and their licenses, but it's just like a first-time chef. No restaurant wants to hire you when you don't have any experience. So getting that first hour of time where somebody else is paying you instead of you paying for it, I think that was the biggest challenge both for me and I think we see that with a lot of others who are first coming out of flight school. And trying to overcome that, well, it's difficult. You've just maybe put yourself in debt to spend seventy or $80,000 getting a pilot's license, and now nobody wants to hire you. And I think that can be especially difficult for somebody who may have come out of flight school in the last three or four months because it's even harder than ever to get a job. One of the things that helps motivate me is to remember that this industry, just like any others, is cyclical. People were flying after the financial crisis of 2008, and we saw a huge slowdown. People were flying back in 2001 when we, of course, we saw a huge slowdown. So anything like that that's happened in the past, I think if you look to that, you see that it may take a little while, but there's always a recovery there. People love to fly, people love to travel, and I think the industry will bounce back from this as it has from many other crises in the past. So for someone who's in that situation trying to find that employer, you may need to take a break. You may need to be okay with the fact that even though you've just spent all this money on a pilot's license, it is going to be some time before you can get back into the cockpit and you can get back into flying. And it's hard to find another job that's equivalent. I'm in that situation right now thinking, what else would I be doing if not for this? That's probably the biggest challenge we have as pilots is when nobody wants to actually pay us to fly. And I think the the only thing I can offer people who've been in that situation is we've all, this industry has been in that situation before we've all come out of it. And for those who can be patient, well, the fun is worth the wait. Any other advice you would like to convey to people who are initiating their careers in aviation? Yeah, actually, you know, there's some things that I wish I had known and I wish my certain friends had known. 
Uh, number one, I would say take a fan flight. Like a fan flight is where you go to a flying club and say like, hey, I've never been up in a small plane. Uh, can you take me up? I'd like to see what it would be like to, to try to learn how to fly. I think it costs, I want to say like under 150, maybe $200, let's just say. But if you're going to invest sixty to $80,000, $200 is nothing. Take a fan flight because I've had people, again, like I went to Seneca, so you don't an airplane until the third semester. And at that point, you've already invested $10,000 into an undergrad. And they did that. They did really well in their in their academics. And then they hit. They started flying and realized that they are very susceptible to motion sickness and they could not get through a flight without throwing up. So hands and feet wise, they may be great, you know, academically, they're great, they're very bright, but they, they don't, they can't get through a little airplane, like they, it's just too much motion sickness. And there's nothing you can really do about that. So definitely, um, you know, if you're going to invest 80, 60 to $80,000 into training, get a fan flight, so you know what it's like, um, and see if your body handles it. Number two, I would say, um, understand the financial issues, like becoming a pilot is almost like becoming a doctor in terms of money wise not even close actually but it's still like it's something you really have to think about um if you do it privately it's eighty thousand dollars most people don't have eighty thousand dollars lying around and so if you're going to take a loan make sure that you are approved for the full amount before you start um and if you are not going to do it privately then i would definitely suggest you know look into schools that are covered by OSAP and see how you can do your training there. Um, but just be prepared that it is a very, very expensive industry. And every time, um, every time you need to do a flight, it's a lot of money. It's a couple hundred dollars every time and equipment, like you still need a headset and headsets. The cheap ones are around $400. The good ones are around $1,600. You don't have to buy a headset every year or anything like that. I'd say like, once you get one, you could easily go 10 years, maybe even your whole life with the same headset. But the point is, every single thing costs money, like your your subscriptions for your maps cost money. Um, you know, getting to and, to and from the airport costs money. If you want to like rent a simulator and do some practice, that costs money. Um, so just be prepared. That's not just tuition alone. You also have to live and there's also extra things that you're going to want to do that cost a lot of money. Um, uh, and then I would say, like I touched upon it beforehand, but like have some sort of a backup. Don't let aviation be the one and only thing that you have. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, the industry is very, very fragile. It's a very, it's a very uh, rewarding industry and it's very different and everybody in it loves it. But again, with 9-11, with COVID, everything is so fluid. Every time there's a crash, people are scared to fly. Um, it's very, very sensitive. So I would say if, Worst case, and it's all dependent on your medical too. So if you have a heart attack or if you, uh, you know, you're flying and then suddenly you realize that you have seizures, your medical is stripped away. It doesn't matter how many thousands you've already spent. So I would say have yourself a separate set of um, skill set, whether that's in trades, whether it's a separate business, whether it's finance, whatever it may be, I really don't care. But how, give yourself give yourself a chance if your medical is to, to go for a walk. Um, and number four, I would say just, it, it is a very, very challenging environment in your training. So don't underestimate how hard you really have to work. Just because you're smart doesn't mean you won't have to apply yourself or work hard. Um, your intelligence is only gonna get you so far. You really, really have to apply yourself. And if you are going to do this privately or even through Seneca just prepare be prepared that while you are doing your flight training or while you are you know doing your degree at Seneca like if you do it through Seneca the next four years of your life is theirs you get one day off per week but the other six days you won't know your schedule until the day before at six o'clock so just be mentally prepared that for the next four years you're not going to get to really go and do anything else it's just you and school um, and if you do it privately, just be aware that, okay, you're about to invest $80,000 into training. Don't give yourself distractions. Be fully invested and do well for yourself. So I think that those are probably the four things I would say. And um, last thing I would say is before you start, reach out to a pilot. Um, 
I didn't do this and I wish I had because nobody in my family was uh, was in aviation. But a lot of the the people I knew that were my classmates and stuff, like they their parents were pilots or they knew somebody that was a pilot. So they had kind of like an insider feel and I didn't. There were so many things that came to me that was a surprise. So if you are, if it, this is something that you want to do, I would say like speak to a, a pilot, find them on LinkedIn, find them on Facebook, wherever, you know, you may, uh, wherever you can really. And to say like, hey, can we just chat? Like, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And most pilots are more, are very like open about sharing their experiences. And I don't think anyone's going to shut you down for it, but definitely do your research before you, before you go into this. But it is a very, very fun, very challenging, very rewarding um, career and I definitely think that if that's if that's something that you want to do then go for it but just be prepared that don't do it for the money because the money is not going to come for like another 10 years after your training um, but the experiences and the people that you meet and the places that you'll go are definitely definitely rewarding.